All right, we are, uh, we are in a season, we are starting a series called Love Without Walls. You will hear more about this, you will learn more about this, you will enjoy this. Uh, we have a couple of different components for you to, to further kind of bring legs and connection points to this experience. One of them is this kind of workbook uh, question deal. And you will see these out when you, when you leave. It's out on these tables. And if you, I think there's a little donation jar. They, they cost us about a dollar or a dollar fifty to print. So if you want to contribute to that or buy the person behind used to, that's great. If you can't afford that, uh, just take one anyway. We, we want you to engage with us. This is great for having questions with your family in the evenings, whatever that looks like. Or if you're a single adult, uh, you can go through it on your own uh, in the mornings. And it will kind of be a reminder of what we're talking about in this Love Without Walls series through these next couple of weeks. So grab one of those. We also have Lori's book out there if you would like that. Now, this three weeks, we are going to see some interesting things happen. We are committing in between now, the beginning of October, and the end of the year, so you do the math, uh, three months, we are committing, we are going to try to touch, impact, connect with 10,000 people in our community. Huntington, Westminster, Fountain Valley, Seal Beach, wherever you go and do your life, uh, our goal is that we collectively as a church, as a community, are intentional about interacting with, inviting, uh, engaging 10,000 people between now and the end of the year. Why would we do something like that? Because we are not just a church who meets and talks about stuff. We are a church that embodies what it is that we're talking about, being people, being, showing this love without walls. So we're going to put it into motion. We are, we are going to do specific things in our community. Uh, we are inviting you to give us ideas of things that we can do in this community and that we can join each other in. And, and just as we go about our lives, inviting, connecting, we are a church of inviters. That is who we are. We bring people with. I, I met several people already this morning who were invited and came with somebody else. That's who we are. That's what we do. So we are going to be intentional about that these next three months. Touch 10,000 is the goal. So that's going to be an exciting deal. Today, we are talking about, we are getting started in this deal, and we're talking about this idea of a status update. Facebook, social media will tell you that status is about one thing. Our culture will point to status being one thing. But perhaps we have the idea of status uh, a little bit skewed, and we ourselves need a status update. Um, and as we talk about this, one of the most significant questions that you will ever ask, that, that one that a person can ask in their life and in their journey, is who is God, really? Who is God? How can we know him? What is he like? And I think I, in my Rudy group, we talked about this a little bit, and, and you see, you know, yeah, 12 different people, and everyone has a different view, or they grew up with kind of a different view of God, and oftentimes it's based on the family that they grew up in, the father that they had or didn't have growing up, the grandparents, the authority figures uh, in their life. You, if, if you grew up in a certain environment and saw authority in a certain way, you might link that to your view of God. That might be how God looks to you. Someone answered the question and said, I think that God is this cosmic police officer in the sky just waiting for me to screw up. That is the view that this person grew up with of God. What's your view of God? Do you, how, do you, how do you see him? What does that look like? 
Do you associate him with some kind of authority in our culture? You look at our culture, and we're, we're in the midst of this election season, right? So it's easy to get caught up with the ultimate authority, the president of the United States, and, and that kind of jockeying and lobbying and campaigning for some great position. Is our God like that? Or perhaps if you grew up in a, in a broken home and your dad was abusive or in some way let you down, it's, maybe you link God and his, and his authority and his ultimate authority to, to this type of person. But what we're going to talk about today is how you can stop your pursuit of, of asking the question, what is God like, by looking at one person, and that's Jesus. We are going to look at Philippians chapter 2, uh, primarily at the beginning here, and we are going to look at what it says, who Jesus is, who God is in this man, in this God-man, Jesus Christ. Before we do, I want to set it up a little bit. I want to tell you about the time and the place uh, that this book of Philippians was written and give you some context. In that day, in this, let, let's go back further, ancient, uh, ancient Greece, gold was discovered. And there was a king who was in charge of that area at the time, and his name was King Philip. He was the man. It was all about him. He ruled and reigned and was supreme in that time and place. They found gold in Greece, and this is just enhancing his legacy, right? Gold. He could tell him, this is crazy. This is valuable. We're going to do something special. And so he decides, as he's accumulating this new wealth, and he's becoming this great power in that region of the country, he decides he's going to create a city for himself. So he names it after himself, and it's called Philippi right? So Philippi is birthed out of King's Philip, King Philip's obsession with himself. He thinks he's great, and he's going to build a great city to show it off. Not only does he think he's great, he begins to think that he is actually a god. He begins to think of himself as deity, that maybe he is invincible, that he was born, but he might never die. Not true, because he stirred up a lot of rebellion and he was assassinated. He did, in fact, die. And when he died, he left all his wealth and this city of Philippi to his 20-year-old son, who later became known as Alexander the Great. He became known as Alexander the Great because he went out and he, he conquered city after city, country after country, people after people, army after army, and he assembled what's arguably one of the greatest armies in history, certainly of that time, and he just was on a war path. And he, too, was interested in making his name great. And he got under the illusion that he, too, was invincible, that he might be a god. He certainly was not a god. He died when he was 33 years old. That is the context of this city, Philippi. That is the place where where this letter from Paul was written. That's how it came up. That's, that's how Philippi became Philippi. So we have in this place a, a, a culture that is extremely obsessed with greatness, that is extremely preoccupied with their wealth, with their gold, with their, with their possessions, and with their progress in culture. They had a five-tiered system uh, of cultural, like a caste system, like a you know, status system. At the top of this system were what was called senators. They governed the land, okay? Senators were the elite of the elite. They were in charge. They ran the show. They were the specialists. They, they, everyone kind of fell in line under them, senators. Underneath them were these people called the equestrians. Any guesses on why they had the name, the equestrians? Because they had horses. 
They were wealthy enough that they had horses. They rode horses. You could tell an equestrian by how they dressed and because they were on a horse. Weird that back in those days that status was somehow linked to your mode of transportation, right? I mean, who would have thought that those people would be so ignorant, you know, so long ago as to associate their status and wealth with the, uh, you know, the thing that they drove or rode. So we had senators, equestrians, and then we had citizens. These people were protected by the laws of their day, okay? But they weren't, they, they, so they were, they were considered, you know, they were kind of the middle class. They were solid, they were good, but you had, you know, two layers of greatness above them. And then underneath the citizens were what were called the free men, and the free men, the laws that governed did not apply to them. They were not protected by the laws. So they could be manipulated and used and abused in different ways. And they didn't have the same rights as the three levels above. Okay? The, the fifth and final level were slaves. They had no rights whatsoever. Their only role in life was to be obedient. So they just served up the chain. Now, in that day, you would do your family honor if you could somehow elevate yourself out of one class and into the next. That was the goal. That was your obsession. That was what you aimed for. You wanted, it was upward mobility. How could you get higher than you started, faster, better, quicker, efficiently, and bring honor to your family in doing so? Now, you would bring dishonor to your family if somehow you dropped a level, if you were reckless with your money, if you made a terrible decision, if you married somebody and it was, a, it was a bad deal and they brought you down in some way. That would bring dishonor on your family because in Philippi in that day, they were interested in what? Upward mobility, building, growing, going to the next level, going to the next place, getting higher, stepping up, right? Elevating their social Status. So it is to that church in Philippi, after Jesus has died, risen again, and gone into heaven, that now Paul writes and encourages these people. And he says, This is who Jesus is, my friends. Let's live like Jesus. So we are going to start in Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can go along with me. If you don't have Bibles, we have them. You can take one. Uh, but at least pull out your outlines. Here we go. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any, <clears throat> if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. This is again as Paul writing. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and, a, and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In Philippi in that day, that would have been a radical, radical statement. They would not have gotten it. It would not have made sense immediately because their whole life was about upward trajectory. It was about growing, climbing, moving up, your, your status, your worth, it was all tied into that pursuit. So this is a countercultural commission that Paul is giving. As he has been taught by the disciples and by Jesus himself, he is now saying, this is how you should live. Not, it's not about this upward climb. It's different than that. Think about this idea of humility. 
So then it goes on. In your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of mind of Christ or that he had, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So what's the first thing that we see here that we learn about Jesus? If you want to know what God is really like, you look at Jesus. And Jesus has zero entitlements. Zero entitlements. This is the God of the universe who created all things and kept this earth spinning then and still now. And he humbles himself. And he did not consider equality with God his, his, the fact that he was God, something to be grasped, not to, he did not use it to his own advantage. Now, the people in Philippi of that day, they would say, well, what good is power and authority if you can't leverage it for your good? Well, what is it? What do you, what do, you do with it? What, what, what do you do with this power and, and authority? I, you know, I, I've worked hard to get here. I, I, I don't, what should I if, if you've ever been around this kind of entitlement, I'm sure that you have. If, if any of you ever been to like a homeowner's association meeting, like if you want to come in contact with entitlements, you go to a homeowner's association meeting and you will find people that have no authority anywhere else exerting their authority in this meeting and they will let you know that your dog cannot be walking on the grass that you have your dog walking or whatever the case may be, right? There are endless little places like that where people are ponying up and trying to, trying to exert their perceived entitlements. I've been here longer than you. I've climbed the ladder longer than you. I've been a Christian longer than you. I, I, I've went through this. I've experienced this. You don't know. And they have this sense of entitlement, right, in all, in all areas of our lives. I was at a restaurant not too long ago, and there was this guy in front of me who he, uh, he ordered his meal. And you know how you have, like, usually it's the darker cup that you buy the drink, and you go and get the fountain drink, whatever. And then if you just want water, they give you the clear cup, and then you go and get the water. And so that, you know, that's happening at this particular place. And I noticed this guy's kind of in a tiff. He's in front, and he already paid for his food. Now he went over here, and now he's come back. And he comes back, and he says, your root beer doesn't work. And the sweet lady, the girl behind the counter is like, oh, I'm sorry, sir. He goes, well, can you replace it? And she's like, oh, no, you know what, I'm sorry, we can't. The truck doesn't come and kind of refill our, our stock, our supply until tomorrow. Do you think you could just do Coke? No, I can't do Coke. I want root beer. Oh, I'm so sorry. He goes, well, I demand a refund. And she goes, no, I'm sorry, I can't give you a refund for your drink. And he goes, why not? And she, he goes, because you have a water cup. <laughs> you didn't pay for your drink to begin with, right? Silly, but we see we, there's, there are entitlements like that. We get all like worked up about something that we think that we deserve uh, because of whatever the issue is, and we think that we're entitled to this, and you know, make this happen for me. I, I deserve this. And in Philippi, they would have been asking a similar question, like, well, well what, good, what good is our authority? What good is the fact that I'm up here and not down there? What am I supposed to use my position for? And Jesus would say, Jesus' example, what he used his authority, his position, his power for, was you. He used it for you and for me. He was countercultural. He laid down his power and authority. And he had zero entitlements to his name. And he decided he chose next to be the ultimate servant. Look what the next verse says. Rather, 
He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Stop there. If you have a pen, circle made himself nothing. What that doesn't mean was that he was, no, that, that he was somehow no longer God. He was still God. He was always God. He just intentionally reined it in in some way, chose to limit himself in some way so that we, so that he would in effect serve us so that we could connect and allow him to serve us. I was at the beach yesterday. This will help make sense. And uh, I was watching some good volleyball being played. And I saw this guy who was obviously a really good volleyball player playing with his kid over on the side. Now this is like a nine-year-old kid and this is like a 40-something-year-old guy. And he was obviously really good. He was playing in the tournament. And, and his kid is nine. His kid isn't good yet, right? So he's just kind of helping his kid and showing him how to play and teaching him the skills and, and playing nice and easy. Maybe even sometimes getting on his knees, playing down at his level, right? What a punk if he would have had some kind of like Napoleon complex and just like given it everything he had, right? He's better than that. He has the power. He has the position. He has the authority. He could beat this ball at his kid and say, dig it. Come on, get that ball up. He could... He could do that, and then you would have seen that and called CPS or something, and it would have been a disaster. But that's not what he did, and that's not what you would do as a parent or an uncle or a niece or, what, or an aunt or whatever. You would kind of limit your ability for the sake of the kid or the person that you're playing with to play at their level. That's what Jesus did. He chose to come, limit him, himself and in in all his godness to a human form. Look at what it says. Being made in human likeness. Jump back. Ultimate, I, I want to hit this ultimate servant. Have you seen the show Undercover Boss? Have you seen the show Undercover Boss? I don't know why. I, I, I don't like very many reality TV shows, but a show like that, it gets me. I like it. Why do we like it? We like it because this powerful CEO, I mean, imagine God in heaven and coming to earth in human form, right? And then we'll put that aside for a second and just think in practical human terms. This powerful CEO, they take off their Armani suit. They're worth millions of dollars. They take off their Armani suit. They get dropped off in a Ford Blazer. They're not driving their normal Bentley or whatever, right? And they show up on the front lines behind the scenes in the $10 or $12 an hour job position, and they work with their lowest employees. And there's something in us that says, that's awesome, right? There's something in us that loves that they would humble themselves and go down to the lowest position in their company, whether it's fast food and they're back there flipping burgers or whatever it is, whatever episode you've seen, and they go down and they work and they see for themselves the lives of the people that are there. They see for themselves the regular people, how hard they work, what the company means to them, and it opens up their eyes in a whole new way and they see things differently as a result of having humbled themselves and gone into that place. And we love it. And we cry, don't we? When they fall in love with the guy and his family and then they give him a raise and you know, it's this great, is it just me? I cry at these shows. Because there is something significant about someone who would humble themselves and go and work the lowly job and love on the person who never feels like they get any attention and corporate doesn't care anything about them, right? That is what our God has done. That is what he does. And that's what great leaders do. In his book, Jim Collins, he wrote the book, Good to Great. It talks about five levels of leadership. And even him, in his, in his research, in this practical uh, marketplace, has found 
this. It says, we were surprised, shocked really, to discover the type of leadership required for turning a company, turning a good company into a great one. Compared to high-profile leaders with big personalities who make headlines and become celebrities, the good to great leaders seem to have come from Mars. Self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy, these leaders are, parado- are a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. They are more like Lincoln and Socrates and less like Patton or Caesar or Alexander the Great or King Philip. That is an example. That is a little micro, a little glimpse of our God. You want to know what God is like? He's like Jesus who had no entitlements and who came as the ultimate servant to serve you and me. And the third thing, he was surprisingly relatable. We said, being made in human likeness. He came as a child. He came as a baby. He could have come in any kind of form, in any kind of way. He chose to come as a little baby born in a manger, born among animals. He came simple. He came as a human, so he got tired. He got hungry. He got sick. He got worn out. He got frustrated with people, right? Just, just real human stuff. There's nothing more impressive, more compelling, even more surprising than a relatable God. He came in a way that we could relate. And then the last thing is that he is shockingly sacrificial. It says, after being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the cross was the lowest form. I mean, no person in these higher stratas would be killed on a cross. It was reserved for the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low, okay? Jesus, if, let's just, if we can just kind of visualize in your mind, chart his, chart his journey. He comes from heaven, right? He comes in the form of a man. He's born in a barn. He is born to a normal people, the son of a carpenter. So he learns carpentry, just a regular average job, right? Then even when he becomes a teacher and a rabbi and he starts his ministry, he still has no home. He's homeless. He's the homeless rabbi, right? He had the stigma. He was the homeless rabbi with the regular fishermen disciples, okay? So he, he's, he's working this, this downward mobility thing, right? From heaven to earth, barn, uh, carpenter, homeless rabbi. And then he is, he is, people try to kill him at every turn. He does miracles. People ask for more. Then they try to kill him. His friends, his closest friends, like one of the 12, uh, betray him with a kiss and turn him over to the guys who will ultimately kill him. They beat him within an inch of his life and then hang him on the cross, the lowliest way that you can die the most torturous way that they had invented to that point that a person could die. And then, not even that, he is buried in a borrowed tomb underground. Heaven, this downward trajectory, ultimately in the ground, in a borrowed tomb. That's the path of Jesus. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. And you look at the contrast of his... His artistic, intentional, downward mobility versus our day and age and in this time of Philippi where they are just doing whatever they can to work themselves up the ladder. And it's into that that we get this encouragement from Paul to follow the example of Jesus 
regardless of what you see around you, regardless of this, of this pride that bubbles up inside and just wants to climb, follow this example of Jesus because he ultimately was raised up to the highest place. Look at, look at the last Look at this last verse here. It says, therefore, God exalted him. Anytime you see a therefore, you want to know what came right before that, right? So therefore, because he had no entitlements, because he was a servant, because he was relatable and sacrificial, because of this downward trajectory, God raised him, exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somehow, for Jesus, this downward mobility leads to ultimate authority. Now, perhaps... If this is the life that Jesus lived, perhaps there is something in this that we should pick up on. Perhaps there is something that he would want to say to you about your current pursuits, about your current ambitions, about your current trajectory. When I was a kid, uh, I don't know, maybe I was in high school. I think, I don't know what it was, but I was starting probably to get a little bit puffed up, a little bit cocky in some way. Maybe it was sports, maybe it was something else. My grandpa pulled me aside and told me a story. Now, my grandpa was a tent revival preacher. So he preached in places like Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and, and New Mexico and places where there was a lot of dust, okay? And they would put up tents and lots of people would come and they would, you know, have these revivals for like nights and on nights. And so he was one of those guys. And when he was younger, in his 20s, he... He got his first opportunity to preach at one of these big events, probably hundreds, maybe a thousand people in the crowd. And so he was so pumped up. He was so excited. This was, his, this was his chance to show that he had some skills, that he could preach, that there was something that he had to say. And, and, and he, you know, I think he was in like all, because I've seen him in later years, right? He passed away, but I, I'm pretty sure he was wearing like a white suit, the white leather shoes. You've seen these guys in stories from the past, hopefully only. And, and so he, but he was ready to go, okay? And so his time came up. He's in a row of seats on the stage, and there's older, more seasoned guys, and they're playing a role. Some guys are teaching tomorrow night and last night, and tonight's my grandpa's night. And so it's, her, it's his time. The music stops. He jumps up. He grabs his notes in note card form in his hands. He goes up to the podium. He puts them down. He stomps his feet. He pounds the podium, and he starts to make a point, and he notices that when he pounded the podium, all his notes fall off, and they fell onto the ground. And he gets a little bit uh, nervous, but he's already starting into his first point, so he just keeps going, and then he realizes he doesn't know what he was going to say next. And so he gets down, and he starts picking with his, his notes, but they are all mixed up and out of order. I mean, this is well before you were printing off things with page numbers, okay? So they are a mess on the floor. He's trying to sort them and grab them. He can't ever figure out what he wanted to say next. He puts his notes in his pocket. He remembers the last thing that he was trying to say and a little fragment of the verse that he wanted to drive home, and he says it, and he walks off the stage knowing that he had just humiliated himself and given not a worthless message but a very subpar message to this large group of people. And he hangs his head and he walks off and he goes to the very end of all the seats on the stage and he sits down. And the oldest 
most seasoned, wise of those preachers among them, went and sat down next to him and whispered in his ear. And he said, son, if you would have walked up to that platform like you just walked down, you would have walked down like you walked up. And that was the message that my grandpa wanted to impart to me when I was a teenager. And that is what I remember. And that is the example of Jesus. One more little glimpse, John 13. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around himself. The God of the universe comes down from heaven, lets go of any entitlements, takes on the form of a human, takes on the form of a servant and washes his disciples' feet. That, if you want to know what God looks like, friends, look at Jesus. That is your God. That is our God. That is our example. And then it says in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It is not just Jesus who is to live that way. It's us who is to live that way. Do you want to know what a follower of this Jesus looks like? It's all the things that we just talked about. My question for you, friends, is are you willing to release your entitlements? Are you willing to show up as a servant? Are you willing to expose your own brokenness and be relatable to others? And are you willing to give to the point that it's sacrificial? Are you willing to follow Jesus in this way? Jesus did not come and live humbly so that you could live pridefully. He did not come and lay down his life so that you could take up yours and go make something. He did not come and take this downward route so that you could just keep stepping up and over people. He came to set us an example of how we too should live. What is it time to let go of? Look in your outlines where it says, my rights, my entitlement, and then to the right, not used to my own advantage. My status, becoming a humble servant. Self-protection or becoming relatable. Self-centered or giving sacrificially. Will you think about that? Will you sit with that? What, what, what resonates with you? What is God whispering to you? Just sit with that in this moment and see what he would say.
Friends, every single day we have a choice to try to make sure that we are served well or to choose that we will be servants. Wherever you show up in your day, in your life, as you go about your business, will you show up and say, I'm here to serve. I am here to serve. Can you try it? Can you say it out loud with me? I'm here to serve. When you show up on a Sunday here, even at church, will you have that attitude? Will you say, I'm here to serve? When you show up at home, even if it's after a long work day and you work so hard, you put in so many hours, you're so tired and the kids are loud and noisy, or you just want to go and watch TV and let your mind melt away, will you remind yourself, will you say in that moment when you get home that I'm here to serve? When you get to work, and even if you're the boss, even if you're the, even if you're the man, even if you're the woman, even if you run the show, will you take that posture, that attitude, and just say, I am here to serve. I am here to serve. It's who I am. It is my identity. I am a humble servant. John 21, 20, 21 says, as the Father sent me, Jesus says, I am sending you in this same way. God, make us people that are willing to serve, that are humble in heart, that will follow you boldly in this countercultural pursuit, being willing to go downward for the sake of serving others and ultimately serving you. And we trust that you then will lift us up in a way that you see fit.